Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 18 of Everything Compliance, the only compliance podcast around. In this episode, which is part two of a post-Harvey edition, Matt Kelly opens with a discussion on the current state of the SEC and what he sees for changes by SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Mike Volkoff joins us to consider the intersection of anti-corruption compliance and antitrust compliance in connection with the role of the Chief Compliance Officer. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Mike Volkoff, you've been thinking about the convergence of anti-corruption compliance and antitrust compliance. What have you been thinking about? Well, Tom, I... uh I, in handling a bunch of uh, cases of criminal antitrust cases representing individuals in them over the last few years, um, what has struck me has been sort of the absence of any real compliance effort. Um, I'm used to seeing, you know, in companies and clients, I'm used to seeing, you know, more and more robust um, compliance programs relating to um, anti-corruption, obviously, uh, for obvious reasons. But now what I'm seeing is, uh, you know, sort of this antitrust area, which is hugely risky, uh, criminal antitrust prosecutions. And this, I'm not talking about the complex areas of, you know, is this a rule of reason, uh, antitrust violation. I'm talking about the per se violations, which are like price fixing, uh, companies getting together and allocating territories, uh, allocating customers. And I think that we, what's, what's happened is that the legal shops have been sort of taken control of these, of this area. And because there are tough legal issues with regard to rule of reason type issues. And what's happened is that compliance has sort of just, you know, left legal to worry about compliance in this area. And I think it's a real mistake. I want to see chief compliance officers getting into addressing criminal antitrust uh, risks. And uh, here, and uh, not to be like a fear monger, and you know how much I hate fear mongering in the legal business, but you have to be realistic about antitrust enforcement. When you have these global cartels, you literally have to get your clients uh, through let's say, you know, up to 10 to 15 jurisdictions uh, where they may have liability, even though they don't reside there. But if the uh, global, let's say, cartels that I've been working on uh, impact business in Brazil, you can rest assured that under the new Brazil antitrust uh, enforcement regime, they're going to be interested. So what I'm trying to sort of spread the message on now is it's compliance has got to turn their attention to this risk because it's a huge risk area. And the Justice Department's antitrust division has had a pretty good record in uh, since the 1990s using the leniency program. Uh, and they've gotten companies to come in and then to basically argue, you know, uh, not argue, but uh, apply for leniency. And the first company in gets a pass and nobody goes to jail. They don't pay a fine. And then they tell on uh, all the other cartel members 
And so there's an incentive for you to uh, disclose to the government. Uh, and it's much more mature and robust than, you know, the FCPA pilot program or anything like that. Uh, and it's worked very well, um, you know, through the years uh, in sort of, uh, you know, unleashing sort of this, uh, um, you know, enfor global enforcement system. Um, now, I got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, we all know uh, Joe Murphy, who is in the um, uh, compliance space. And, and uh, on my blog, I gave he and many other people have been pushing the antitrust division to give credit to compliance programs in the antitrust uh, space when co companies get in trouble. Uh, that they can come in and say, look, we had a robust compliance program. For years, the antitrust division would take the position of, well, your compliance program didn't work because you uh, violated the law. So therefore, by definition, didn't work. And Joe Murphy and many other of sort of antitrust compliance professionals uh, argued and pushed the antitrust division. And then there was some push from like the FCPA space and other parts of the of the Justice Department to say, look, antitrust division, you've got to credit uh, people here for their compliance programs, and they've changed their attitude, and the pro the program has changed, and now you can go in and when you may have a problem in your company, you can say, look, we had a robust, effective compliance program. Yes, we had this problem here in Brazil, or we had this problem here in these countries. Um, but the program itself was was well designed and functioning fairly well. Or let's say we uncovered the pro the through an audit, we uncovered the problem itself. We walk in, we get the leniency application. Or let's say we're the second one in, we're going to get credit for our uh, compliance program. So that's you know my 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 push is that people need to spend more time on this because it is a significant risk out there in the global uh, enforcement uh, world, uh, even more so than uh, FCPA in that the global enforcers are still catching up on, you know, uh, other countries on in a corruption enforcement. This is pretty robust. Uh, the only thing that's different outside of the United States on antitrust is that there is no sort of criminal penalty uh, for corporations or these are usually uh, civil enforcement matters. But look at, you know, Google got hit just recently by the EU uh, for, you know, over $2 billion or 2 billion euros. Uh, so this is really, um, you know, serious uh, issues. And, and uh, it's something that chief compliance officers have been reluctant to sort of talk to legal about. But I'm seeing more and more, uh, you know, efforts being made, and I just want to sort of push people along if I can uh, in this space. So if no one else has any questions for Mike, uh, I had a couple. Mike, uh, one of the things that intrigued me was that the risks you identified for anti-cartel activity or cartel activity or antitrust compliance really converge with and a corruption or a corruption risk, and two of those were sales staff and uh, a joint venture between competitors. So if those are risks that the anti-corruption compliance practitioner needs to look at, it would seem to me that it would be a natural for them to look at that from the antitrust perspective as well. 
Well, that's a great point because we are talking about the sales staff uh, activity in obviously in anti-corruption because they have every incentive to, you know, bribe a foreign official for a contract or they'll cut a deal with a competitor and say, let's, um, you know, you take this contract, I'll take that contract. And what's interesting, uh, Tom, is like if we go back in time, uh, it feels like a long time ago, but for example, uh, the ABB uh, FCPA matter, um, actually, this was years ago, an enforcement matter, um, originated from a uh, global antitrust investigation. So now, for example, if you bring in an individual who's going to cooperate at the Justice Department, and let's say it's in an antitrust division case, the second question out of their mouth after the prosecutors will sit there and say, first, hey, uh, tell me what you know about bribery, whatever. But the second question will be, what do you know about antitrust violations? And they know that, I mean, they've learned that there have been cross-pollinating investigations that started either as antitrust or anti-corruption that led to antitrust or anti-corruption. So they flipped back and forth. And that, to me, I mean, you want an argument for convergence and compliance focus, uh, you know, let's look at our suspect sales staff. Joint ventures, for obvious reasons, um, you know, in the antitrust space, a joint venture is legal, okay? Competitors get together and they start a joint venture together. But lo and behold, they use that as a means to facilitate uh anti-competitive activities and agreements outside of the joint venture because there are legitimate reasons for them to be in contact with each other. Um, Similarly, you can see the same thing in uh, the anti-corruption space, not necessarily a joint venture with a state-owned enterprise, but you may have competitors together. uh, And then together, they may bribe or use a third party to bribe a particular uh, foreign officials. So again, all of these, the, the, the point that you're making about the convergence is absolutely critical because that's how the government enforcers look at it too. That's, we're going to ask about both of those risk areas when we have people in front of us. And, uh, and so that means, you know, from a compliance standpoint, we got to take a step back and look at this risk, these risks and try to do something with them. So, um, that's a, it's an excellent point. Though. Okay, uh, next up, Matt Kelly. Matt Kelly, what has been on your mind? Yes, well, what is on my mind is probably some red meat for all of the SOX compliance listeners out there, whether you are in compliance per se or in internal audit or internal control. But uh, I think now that the Labor Day is behind us, the SEC is gearing up for uh, another look at Sarbanes-Oxley compliance. And, of course, that is code for uh, specifically Section 404B of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which requires all publicly traded companies with market caps above $75 million to have an annual outside audit of their internal control over financial reporting. This is not a fun experience. This is not a cheap experience, but nonetheless, it is the law, and it has been since Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002, and that has led to a lot of people uh, complaining that SOX compliance is not worth 
the cost. Um, so we've already seen that the new SEC chief, SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, he gave a speech in July where he talked a lot about the costs of compliance really have become much larger than was originally intended. Uh, that he basically said the cost of compliance now includes the cost of demonstrating compliance, not just um, stating that you are in compliance. His example was tailor-made for the CEO and CFO certifications that uh, companies need to make every quarter, that their financial controls, their disclosures are up to snuff. And what has happened is all of these big systems Companies have implemented that the CEO discloses this certification, but he passes on a sub-certification requirement to the division manager who passes on a sub-sub-certification to the operations department heads and so forth and so on. And the, the, mecha the mechanics of demonstrating compliance were never really included in what people thought the costs of compliance are. And so, of course, this is terrible. We should loosen this. We should probably raise the exemption threshold from 75. Uh, some people in Congress have proposed 250 million and up. Some people have proposed 500 million and up. Everybody below it would be exempt. That would be a significant majority of publicly traded companies in the U.S. have less than 500 million in market cap. So they'd all be exempt from internal control audits. Uh, there's a lot that's going on here. I know that on September 13, for example, the SEC is going to have a advisory committee on small company issues. They're going to have a meeting. They're going to talk about this. There was a hearing in July that Congress had. They've talked about it. We're going to hear a lot of talk about it. Um, I think that there are two points we need to keep in mind here. Number one, when you hear Jay Clayton or others talk about private companies that get all of these run-ups in valuations. You know, Uber has been private since it was founded, I think, in 2010 or something like that, and its valuation has skyrocketed. Clayton would say that Uber should have an easier path to go public so that when the valuation skyrockets, Mr. and Mrs. 401k, and those are the people Clayton talks about, Mr. and Mrs. 401k, they can get a piece of that action and buy Uber stock because Uber has gone public earlier in its life, when that big valuation happens, they get to get a piece of that valuation and everybody wins. That's his, his argument. Um, I think that overlooks the fact that a lot of these private companies have inflated values. And private equity firms and investors, they're pouring money into Uber and Airbnb and Blue Apron and the rest because there's nowhere else to put your money. So these prices get inflated. And if you let these companies go public earlier, then that pricing risk is going to go from the private markets into the public markets. And I don't necessarily know that, you know, like, why is a bunch of investors and private equity people misguiding or overinflating Uber's net worth? Like, why is that my problem? Why should I be doing any of that? And when you look at Snap, when you look at Blue Apron, both of which went public earlier this year, uh, they flatlined after that. And because they had an overinflated valuation, they went public and the investor markets said, this is overinflated, sell. And so the price fell. Um, those are very small examples of the bigger trend we saw in the late 90s of the dot-com bubble. And I fear that if we loosen SOX restrictions and open this IPO pipeline, 
we're going to see another repeat of the dot-com implosion or the big run-up and then the implosion. Um, it is funny to hear that in one of these hearings, a big proponent of loosening IPO rules is the head of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, who is 42. And if you do the math, that therefore means he was 25 when the IPO bubble burst for the dot-coms in 2000. And he has no memory of, you know, having a significant amount of your retirement accounts, Mr. and Mrs. 401k, suddenly collapse. Uh, you know, I, I was there. I, I was older than 25 in 2000. I don't need to talk about how old I am. But um, nonetheless, uh, you know, you could see this sort of a thing. And I, I worry that we're going to lose our history here, that this was a bad idea. And the other big point that I want to talk about is we talk about the cost-benefit analysis of SOX compliance. And we need to remember that the costs of compliance may be specific. When you, compliance officer, asking your CFO for a budget for new software, when you're paying your audit fees, that's a specific cost. You feel it. The benefits are diffuse and hard to identify. But if you are SOX compliant, if you're doing 404B, you are less likely to have a financial restatement. Um, that is proven that you, you can see the correlation there clearly. So you're less likely to have mistaken financials. And there is other research now that's showing if you have strong internal controls that are being audited and your material weaknesses, you've got none of those, you've weeded them out of your system. There's also research that shows you are less likely to experience fraud from CFOs who are trying to foist, I don't know, some sort of financial statement scam on investors or whatnot. Like 404B brings benefits. It gives you easier access or more affordable access to capital. If you're going to go out looking for a loan from the bank or a line of credit, your financial reporting is more reliable. That means the bank can give you a lower rate, these sort of things. And we should remember all of this as we talk about SOX 404B, let's repeal it, let's open the IPO window, everybody wins, what can go wrong? A lot can go wrong, and a lot has gone wrong before. And the people who are advocating that we do this seem to be ignoring the history when a lot went wrong, and we have cleaned it up. Can we improve the SOX compliance process? Sure. Do we necessarily need to change the law whole hog or exempt everybody and their uncle from 404B audits? I don't know that that's going to do us as many favors as possible, but it will feel really good for the first couple of quarters when you get that hot IPO. And I'll close with one point that I just left me really upset and, uh, and angry, frankly, is one Republican congressman. We had a, they had a hearing in July talking about opening the IPO window. He actually said that IPOs are lottery tickets. And wasn't it just normal to let uh, investors have the same right to take a shot at the lottery like they do at the convenience store when you're buying your ticket? An IPO is not a lottery ticket. That is not how IPOs work. Anybody listening to this, unless you're in private equity or you're one of the big Wall Street bankers, you're never going to get those IPO shares that pop on the first day. You don't. Um, and to refer to it as a lottery ticket, and this is how we're going to fund our Mr. and Mrs. 401k plans for the future, this is just the most ignorant and ridiculous thing I'd heard in quite a while. And for Congress, man, that's, that's saying something. Um, so th this wound up turning into, I guess, maybe an, an early rant of mine that went on far too long. But um, that, that's what's going on in SOX compliance right now, and people should stay tuned. Anyone have any questions for Matt? 
Well, I actually do. Matt, um, the legislation in front of the House uh, may well have a better chance of passing, but the Senate, uh, obviously a more deliberative body and closer in uh, numerical num- numerical voting to uh, a party uh, party split, 52-48, uh, any sense of what might happen in the Senate, assuming uh, something uh, as nefarious as you've outlined would get through the House? Well, um, no, and I'm not sure if that is a comfort or not when we say that. Um, we don't know when the Senate might take up uh, Dodd-Frank reform legislation that would probably address some of this. Um, we have heard that the head of the Senate Banking Committee, Mike Crapo, when he thinks about Dodd-Frank reform, he's thinking more reforming um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, um, addressing some systemic oversight of the banking sector by the Federal Reserve. And it's worthy of attention there to talk about those issues. But that's very different than these compliance and governance issues we're talking about. This sort of stuff does tend to get shoehorned into that broader legislation. But uh, you have to think that this fall, Congress is going to be all about tax reform. It's going to be all about um, the debt ceiling, which will come up for another vote, I guess, in December. Uh, Probably more emergency aid for the hurricane-battered parts of the country. There's a lot going on. Is it likely to happen this fall? I'm hard-pressed to see that it would. Even if the Senate passed something, it has to be reconciled to the House bill, which is very different. And then on top of all of that, if we don't do it this year, it gets kicked into 2018. Do you really want to be debating that when uh, we have an election cycle where it is entirely possible that the House might flip to the Democrats in 2018, possibly even the Senate? Like, There's a lot of big issues. Do you want to start grabbing third rails like that? And uh, I would not be surprised if Actually, what do we see at the end of the day is we don't see anything from Congress. We may see some administrative approaches the SEC tries because I think that I fear Jay Clayton might play down the historical evidence about the importance and utility of SOX compliance as he goes for more and more IPOs. We've got to open the pipeline as wide as possible. That seems to be his goal. And I look forward to hearing how contemplative and considerate he will be to other points of view as we talk about that. That's probably the only place we're going to see any real issue before 2019. That's my guess is will be some sort of SEC motion. Well, gentlemen, as always, it has been a a ton of fun, uh, quite informative, some very heartfelt and very good rants today. So on behalf of the entire everything compliance crew, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen, and Jonathan Armstrong. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to visiting with not only the compliance group, but our audience again. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Hello again. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. Also, it would help with our rankings. I hope you'll join us next week for part two of this special two-part post-Harvey episode on Everything Compliance. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, and I hope you'll join us next week for part two of Everything Compliance, the post-Harvey edition.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.